You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Last Sunday, we began uh, a brief kind of overture of uh, through Jeremiah, just a, a few sermons from it to give us an idea of his message. Several of you are studying that in Sunday school right now. I thought it might be uh, the Lord's timing might be helpful. We've entitled the series, A True Word for Tough Times. Last Sunday, we began with chapter one and what Jeremiah's call uh, teaches us about the word of God. And we noted uh, there that uh, the fundamental problem of Jeremiah's day is the fundamental problem of our own day, and that is that people would not hear and heed the word of the Lord. In chapters 2 through 10, we find the content of Jeremiah's preaching, and uh, I've chose chapter 7 as a kind of a sampling or summary of that content, but if you look at chapters 2 through 6, if you just kind of look at those in your, uh, through the scripture, you'll notice that it is written more uh, in a poetic form or, or that is kind of typical of Old Testament prophecy. But then when you get to chapter 7, you notice that it is written in narrative or prose, if you will. And you can even tell the difference in how the words are spaced on your pages. It's identifying that this is something uh, different, a different section uh, here. And so... Um, and, and, and then if you look at chapters 8 through 10, 8, 9, and 10, it goes back to kind of more of that poetic form. Christopher Wright notes here, and I think rightly so, that, that whoever put together these messages and words of Jeremiah, they didn't want us to miss either the passion or the point of Jeremiah's message. We have the passion that flows forth through these poetic uh, vivid kind of writings, and then we have the point, which is uh, summarized for us uh, 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 in the prose, if you will. And so I've I've chosen Jeremiah seven, which is the prose or the narrative part. Uh, this is called the Temple Sermon of uh, Jeremiah. So let's give our attention this morning. I'm going to read verses one through twenty, and then verses twenty-seven through thirty. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? 
and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, verse 16, do not pray for this people. Speaking to Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them. And do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Look down in verse 27 through 30. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pause, we humble ourselves again before you, before your word here, and we ask us, as we do each Sunday, Lord, that you would do your work in us, um, giving us ears to hear, and softening our, our hearts, giving us hearts of, of flesh that we might receive your word and the power of your spirit and be transformed to Jesus' likeness. And uh, Lord, I ask for your help. I pray that you would use me as your servant. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease in your word would go forth. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This temple sermon, as it's been called, is one of the great sermons, I think, preached in uh, the history of God's people. It was a courageous sermon. Uh, and it, it's also a sermon that nearly cost Jeremiah his life. It was preached during the time of a national crisis, you remember chapter 1, we talked about the span of those three kings. Well, the, the people had just uh, lost hope, I think, in, in the power of, of political solutions to their, their problems. King Josiah had just been killed in a battle. Uh, another king, 
stepped in, but he was deported only after a few months to Egypt. And he's replaced with King Zedekiah, who we mentioned last week, who was hostile to God and his word. And so this is very early on in King Zedekiah's reign, who has taken the country, the nation, in a totally different direction away from God. The nation was slipping back into spiritual darkness that had, had plagued them for centuries. And uh, it would seem that the nation of Judah here, much, uh, even much like our own nation, was declining politically, spiritually. When Jeremiah mounted the temple steps to preach. And the sermon is placed here in chapter 7 because I think it does summarize and it consolidates some of the key messages that he has been preaching, as I mentioned, through chapters 2 through 6. And when we read these, we, we need to remember that the book of Jeremiah, in its final form, was written to those who had already been exiled into Babylon. It was written to them. They had paid no attention to Jeremiah's message at that time, but now they are suffering under the fulfillment of it. And this book, this message of Jeremiah would have come to them. A key question I think is asked in chapter 5 verse 19, and that would be the question of why. Simply it says there, uh, chapter 5 verse 19, why has the Lord our God done all of these things to us? Speaking of the exile, the judgment, why, is the, why has he done these things? And then chapter 6, verses 19, we're given the answer when he says, because they have not paid attention to my words, and as far as my law, they have rejected it, he said. The people simply would not listen to all of the words and the warnings God had given them for centuries. And so we come to chapter 7, and I think the why is explained with a little bit more detail. This message that Jeremiah has given was given was a solemn message for, for, for Israel. It, it wasn't uh, anything they hadn't heard from him, but there's a couple of places that stand out because they're so shocking. I'm sure you noticed as we read the text, verse 16, that's a shocking verse, isn't it? God tells Jeremiah, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Down in verse 27, uh, God says to Jeremiah, you shall speak all of these words to them, uh, but he tells them from the beginning, they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer to you. So he's commanded, Jeremiah is commanded to preach this message to them, and yet he is told they will not respond to it, and there's no point in even, to even praying for them about this. It's shocking, isn't it? A shocking word from God, it leads to the question, why would Jeremiah even preach this, this message? And I think, again, right is helpful here in, in three reasons that are still applicable for us today. First, the, the preaching serves to expose the hardness of the people's hearts. It exposes it. As Jeremiah preaches and they refuse to listen, it reveals the persistent, the willful state of rebellion that they were in. And it's to show that the condemnation and judgment they received is actually deserved. Secondly, preaching makes it clear that God did not act without warning. 
in, times of, in the time of judgment uh, that, that he did not act unjustly or without warning. God had warned them through Jeremiah. He had warned them through the other prophets. It's incredibly shocking when you read another prophet, one of the small ones, when you read the, the short word of Jonah and you see there a pagan nation, Nineveh, repenting and responding to God's grace while God's own people, Israel, refused the warning. Our God is a righteous God. No one can question his judgment. No one will question his judgment on the judgment day. Third, for those in exile who would read this and remember that they had refused to listen, the question and the point of this in in recording this and rehearsing it and reading it now is, is will they listen now? Will they respond now? That's a question for us to grapple with, isn't it? Will we hear? Will we see what happened? Will we hear this word? Will we hear and heed these warnings from God? Jeremiah begins rightly with the people of God. When we talk about spiritual awakening or change of direction in our world and our country or revival or any of those things, it always begins with the people of God. It starts in the church Before a country, a county, a city can be turned, change must happen in the church. When God's own people truly repent, truly trust in God, and walk in faithful obedience. The greatest thing that we can do for our community, the way that we can influence our city most significantly is by turning our own hearts toward God and following him wholeheartedly. To be a faithful, holy people here. So what were the issues? That was his plea here in chapter 7. But what were the issues? What were the people of God missing? Well, first, Jeremiah warns that God's people were trusting in superficial religion to save them. Verses 3 and 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The people in Jeremiah's day were in desperate need because they were putting their trust in superficial shallow or the the outward trappings of religion rather than God. Riken calls this their approach temple theology. The people had taken their faith in the living God and they had reduced it to a building. And as long as they were going to the temple, they thought that God would keep them safe. They assumed that as long as they were fulfilling their religious obligations, that they could live their lives any way that they wanted to live. As long as they were continuing to come to church, they assumed that God would never judge them for their sins. They they wanted the, the blessings of the covenant of God without the obedience to that covenant. They wanted uh, to be justified. That's a term from Romans that Paul used. They wanted to be justified without being sanctified. They were presuming upon God and his grace. They were confessing God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. That's why Jeremiah says, do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They kept repeating it over and over again as a mantra. We're good, we're good. 
They thought that because they were God's chosen people, living in God's chosen city, Jerusalem, worshiping in God's chosen temple, that no harm could ever come to them while they continued to live in sin. They were under the delusion that such shallow religion would, sh- would save them. But Jeremiah says it will not save you. I fear that churches all across our country today are filled with people, perhaps this morning, who think the same thing. And perhaps they're not saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Perhaps they're putting their trust in their church attendance and they're saying, I go to church, I go to church, I go to church. And they repeat it as a mantra. Perhaps they're saying, I've been baptized, I've been baptized, I've been baptized. Or maybe they're trusting in their membership. I'm a member, I'm a member, I'm a member. Or I've walked an aisle, I've walked an aisle, I've walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer, I prayed a prayer, I prayed a prayer. Well, that's a tongue twister. None of these things, by the way, are are bad. but, But the temptation is to trust in these things rather than the Lord. To think that somehow these these external things, the people of God were supposed to go worship in the temple. They needed to be baptized. Church membership is important. But you understand, none of those things can save you. Hear this. If, If you're living in unrepentant sin, whether it be lust or bitterness or greed or anxiety or any other sin, unrepentant sin, you are presuming upon God's grace. Don't think that a walk down an aisle 10, 20, 30 years ago is going to save you if you are still persisting in sinful rebellion in your heart. Don't think that church attendance is going to justify you before a holy God. It's delusional, Jeremiah says. One commentator summarized it, religious observance without moral obedience cannot save. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Amen? We, we put no confidence in our flesh. We, we, don't, we don't look back to anything that we have done, our own deeds, but we trust in the righteousness of Christ to save us. That righteousness alone, not a shallow, superficial kind of religion. We don't trust our best days of good works to to trust us. We don't don't think the cumulative amount of all of our good works is going to save us. No, it is Jesus Christ alone. And the result of such is a changed life, is a life of repentance and a life of pursuing God, not a life of persisting in unrepentant sin. There's a big difference. It leads us to Jeremiah's second point. It is related. God's people were living sinful lives without shame and repentance. They weren't just trusting in shallow religion here. It's the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The tem- they were overlooking their sins. And it's really shocking. Here they're saying to God that they're over and over again, the temple, the temple, when God says to them, if, 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 if you truly were sincere, then repentance and obedience would follow. That's what he says in verses five through seven. He says, for if, if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice 
with one another. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you don't go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place and the land that I gave to, of old to your fathers forever. The, the, the implication is, if you don't, God says, I will remove you from this temple, from this city, from this land. These were people who were hiding behind their worship in the temple, and God says, take a look at your life. How you treat other people. Jeremiah is not talking about a greater sincerity in worship or feelings in worship. He, his demands, notice, reaches to the practical, to the social, to the moral, to the ethical, everyday life. You can cry temple all that you want, but if you're not, but, but Jeremiah says you're not following God. Verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. What follows there, notice, is a catalog of the sins of God's people. It's, it's breathtaking because they violate virtually every one of the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, Go after other gods that you have not known? It would be bad enough to commit all of these sins, but verse 10 is the real jaw dropper, if you will. He says, and then, then they, they have the audacity to come, he says, and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we are delivered. We're saved. Only to go on doing these abominations. They did all of these abominations. Then they went to the temple as if they'd done nothing wrong. They thought they could spend six days living however they want. As long as they would give one day singing to the Lord, it would all be okay. All the while thinking, we're delivered. We're safe. We're saved. We don't ever have to worry about God's judgment. We don't have to worry about Babylon coming here and tearing the Lord's temple down. This is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. I'm fine. Reichen notes God's people used God's temple as a safe house. They went out on crime sprees and then went back and used the temple for their hideout. You think, well, that's really strong words to talk about life. Well, you think that's strong. What does God say in verse 11? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And notice God's answer, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. You remember Jesus used that very phrase, didn't he? When he cleansed the temple court, turning over the tables and the money changers, Matthew 21, 13, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you've made it into a den of robbers. The people of Jeremiah's day thought that God didn't care about what they did during the week. They thought they could fool God. They'd just show up to worship. Long, long as they were under the roof, they could live any way they wanted to live. And God says, I have seen it, what you're doing. He turns from the man in the pew to the man in the street in verse 17, he really is talking about the family. He says, do you not see what they're doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? 
Have you been outside the temple? He says, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Almost sounds like a cleaver cookout, doesn't it? Picture perfect family here where kids running around gathering wood, dad building a fire, mom kneading the dough, and they're just drawing closer together as a family, but make no mistake, what they are doing is an abomination, he says. They're making cakes to the queen of heaven. What nonsense, what evil. We don't know who this goddess was. There's all sorts of debate about it. It really doesn't matter because it wasn't the Lord, right? They were to be worshiping the Lord. They were forsaking God and His Word. There was no truth in their worship. Verse 24, they did not obey or incline their ear, but they walked in their own counsels. And the stubbornness of their evil hearts. In fact, Jeremiah notes that truth had all but perished from their lives. Verse 28, this is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Doesn't this shed light on where we are as a nation today when you look around? I mean, we don't need to scratch our head and say, wow, I wonder how we got here. I mean, the decline of marriage, rise in divorce, confusion over genders, perversity of homosexuality, trafficking of kids. Our nation is paying the price for its abandonment of the truth of God's Word. And it started in the church. Jeremiah says, don't just look at the man in the pew or the man in the street. Look at the man outside the city. Just briefly, verse 31, they, they have built the high places of Topheth, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind, God says. Think of that, the horrificness of that. Apparently, there is a... There is a straight path from shallow, superficial religion to adoration of the queen of heaven to the abomination of child sacrifice. It's a linear path of decline, isn't it? Again, it's not hard to see that. Truth had vanished from their homes and even from their churches. I think this is the modern, the problem with the modern church today is that we have failed to take God's word seriously on these things. It began with the church. We've, we've trivialized the, the holiness of God so that we can remain comfortable in our sins. We've trivialized the, the majesty and, and, and splendor and holiness so that we end up with a shallow worship with with not much thought to what we're singing. We've trivialized the truth of God so we end up with a watered-down faith. We've trivialized the, the judgment of God so we end up with only this tepid appreciation of the cross and resurrection of what Christ has done. In his book, God in the Wasteland, David Wells speaks of the weightlessness of God. 
He says it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. That is, He has now become unimportant. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider Him less interesting than television, His commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence. His judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and His truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. He concludes, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, His grace too ordinary, His judgment too benign, His gospel too easy, and His Christ is too common. Weightlessness. What happens when a church or a nation refuse to amend their ways? That's, I think, the point of... Number three, God's people were warned of coming judgment in the destruction of Shiloh. This is verses 12 through 15. It's an illustration in his message. Jeremiah seemingly invites the people of the Judah to take a field trip up north, up to northern Israel to a place called Shiloh. Verse 12, he says, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. Shiloh was a part of the northern kingdom of Israel, which by this time of Jeremiah had already fallen. Um, It was where the temple used to be, if you will, the tent of meeting, or the, the tabernacle resided there in Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant which the very presence of God resided. But if you went to Shiloh at this particular time in Jeremiah's day, you know what you would find there? You'd find nothing but a pile of rubble. Because the people did not obey God. It was destroyed. It was actually destroyed twice, once uh, at least partly by the Philistines who came and they carted off the Ark of the Covenant. You remember that? But then later on the Assyrians came in and they wiped it down to the ground. Just rubble. And so the people in Jeremiah's day, they thought that such a disaster would never happen to them because we have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We're we're safe. Verse 13, he says, and now, he says, because you have done all these things, declares declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, I'm going to do to it as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Now, we don't have time to look at it in detail, but just note... the. the The Hebrew word sama is translated something like hear, listen, or obey my voice. And it's mentioned five times from verses 23 through 28. In every verse except verse 25. 
And so it's emphasizing to us, this was the issue, this was the problem. Verse 26 says, they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but instead, what did they do? They stiffened their neck, and the result, God says, is judgment to that. Well, why do we think that it will be any different for us? But we're back to the question that we ask at the beginning. Will we listen to these warnings from God? Will we hear them today? God hasn't changed. Amen? The sermon concludes in the opening verses of chapter 8, which we didn't read, but, but it really is the recounting of the death of many and those who survive they survive through the judgment. In other words, there's a little remnant left, but they prefer death to life, it says. Look at chapter 8, the second part of verse 2. Uh, they shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family and all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. This whole sermon really is one of the, it's really one of the low points of the book of Jeremiah in terms of that it describes such horrific and horrible kinds of images and things and sins. And one of the troubling things about it, as we look at it, as we read it, is it doesn't, it doesn't contain much grace, does it? One commentator said that the sermon ends without relief. No relief. It may be because when we talk about the valley of slaughter there at the end of chapter 27, the valley of slaughter, that's in verse 32, is really a picture of the valley of hell. The New Testament term describing that valley of slaughter is the term... Perhaps you've heard it before, Gehenna, used in the Gospels. It occurs in places like Luke chapter 12, verse 5, where Jesus tells his disciples that they don't, they don't need to fear man, but they need to fear the one who has authority to cast into hell, literally into Gehenna. Or Matthew 23, 33, Jesus warns the Pharisees, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? To Gehenna. It's the valley of what's called Ben Hinnom uh, outside of Jerusalem, a place of burning and wickedness, and it's like the garbage dump that was always burning, always smelling, always terrible. It's a, it's a picture of hell. And perhaps there's no grace in this sermon and no grace in that valley because there's no grace in hell. Hell is a place of endless torment where God banishes those who have decided to reject Him and His Word and His Son. And so the sermon ends with that note. Boy, though it was too late for those in Jeremiah's day, it's the good news is it's not yet too late for us. 
Perhaps you who are hearing this, if you're hearing this, you have an opportunity before you today. To amend your ways and your deeds, Jeremiah says. To stop trusting the delusions that your religious activity is somehow going to save you or the delusion that God doesn't really care about how you live your life so as long as you're in the temple, in the temple, in the temple. But rather to recognize the force of what Jeremiah is saying that now is the time to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. We, on this side of the cross of Jesus, we rejoice that Jesus Christ took the judgment you and I deserved on himself upon the cross. Isn't that good news? So that we might be saved from the coming wrath of God from Gehenna. But the question remains, will you hear and believe today? Will you flee to Christ for salvation? Because He really is your only hope. He is our only hope. There's no salvation but through Him. But don't be pretentious about it. And don't presume because He knows who are His. We're about to sing one last song in closing this morning. If you need to amend your ways, now is a wonderful opportunity to do that. You can come and pray here again at the front of the church. I'll be standing here as well if you need someone to pray with you. But let's, let's hear this word from the Lord today. Receive it into our hearts. Lord, a difficult word, but Lord, the fact that you're giving us this warning here means that there's opportunity for us to respond to it. And for those that need, do not know you, Lord, we pray especially for them today that today would be the day of salvation. They would quit trusting in themselves to be their own Savior, and they would trust in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And we pray for your help, Lord, that we would remain faithful to your word, that in hearing this and recognizing where the, the problem is in our world today, it's that we stop listening to you. So, Lord, may we be the kind of people here at this church may it, that we would look to you and to your word and to be faithful in our obedience to you. And so help us now, Lord, work in our hearts as we look to you and your precious gospel for all the assurance and strength and power that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.